Chris Narverson, one of the elders serving you. Here we're going to read uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So if you would, please stand out of honor for the reading of God's word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking them to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy of having you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd he, that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, I am Ross, the assistant pastor here, and I'm excited to continue our look at the miracles of Jesus, which we've said are showing us windows into the grand story of redemption. And today's story on the surface may seem very similar to the last two we've looked at where Jesus heals someone. But when we look closer at the context in which that healing took place, we see uh, that there's a much different message in this story and a very encouraging message. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we consider this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Bible, for your scriptures, uh, which are the most powerful written document in this world because they're much more than just a written document. They are living and active. And it is designed and made to be able to train and correct and teach us in righteousness and in godliness. So we pray that you would help us be like the clay this morning. And would your word and would your spirit be like the potter's hands? And would you mold and shape us more into the image of Jesus uh, as we study your word. Would you capture our hearts and stir our imaginations with the beauty of Jesus? And would we fall more in love with him and follow him more faithfully in all our lives because of our encounter with him through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you consider... Who are some of the most influential figures of the last six or seven hundred years? Christopher Columbus would have to be 
on that list with his brave voyage uh, towards the Western Hemisphere and discovering the Americas. But I would argue that a lesser-known man who preceded Columbus was equally as influential in this world of discovery and navigation. And that was the Portuguese man, Prince Henry the Navigator. Several decades before Columbus, an area that Europe was starting to explore more was the west coast of Africa. Uh, Before crossing the Atlantic was a thing, uh, crossing the equator, going south and crossing the equator was a big emotional barrier. Um, Few had the the guts to do it. Uh, They didn't know what to expect the further south they went. Uh, Their imaginations would kind of run wild on what could possibly happen if you, you ventured that far south. There were different theories of what lay along the African coast. And, and also, as you went further south, the North Star was less visible. So that also added to the fear of heading that way. But this was all until Prince Henry the Navigator, who took the advantage of the technological advances in, in, in navigating and also the, sh- the advances in the shipmaking um, and had, some, you know, had, had bravery to begin sending voyages further and further south. And voyage after voyage got further south. They eventually crossed the equator, and eventually um, his crews went to the southern tip of Africa, which, if you think about it, is actually twice as long of a journey than what Christopher Columbus did the, because of how long the coast of Africa is. And this set off the age of discovery, as it's been called. And in the hundred years following Prince Henry's death, humanity's concept of what planet Earth was and what it looked like was blown open. Our, you know, the borders and categories that they had were transcended. Things were bigger and better than they originally thought. And today's passage reminds me a little bit of that transcendence that happened in the age of discovery. Here in this passage, Jesus begins to transcend the borders and categories that we set up in our minds and that were especially in place in that day to show just how far-reaching his kingdom and his work are. And this is important for us to consider because our vision of God's kingdom can often get shrunk way down to just the size of our lives and our worlds, which isn't entirely wrong because we're called to be faithful where we live, work, and play, but we can also be short-sighted. And we can settle for less when we are created for more. And we can fail to appreciate all that God is seeking to accomplish in this world through us. And this passage shows us three boundaries that Christ's kingdom and his work transcend. And I want to look at these three together. The first that we see is that Christ's kingdom transcends ethnicity. The first thing that Luke really wants us to see as we dive into this passage is the ethnic dynamics that are at play here. This is the first instance in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus interacts with a Gentile instead of an Israelite. And this man is a centurion, which to the original readers would have immediately conjured up images of Rome and the, the, you know, Rome overtaking Israel and oppressing them and taxing them. And this centurion was kind of a, you know, an embodiment of that. And, 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 but also, this centurion was very different, as we see. He was friends with the Jewish people. So there's a sense in which Luke is almost providing hope for us 
uh, especially providing hope for his initial readers who would have been reading decades after this, where there was a lot of Jew and Gentile tension and giving hope that there could be relationship between the two. But you see the ethnic dynamic is even brought to a head with Jesus' words at the end of the passage. After he sees what this centurion does, he says to the, to the Israelite people following him, not, not in all of Israel have I seen such faith. This is a very heavy thing for Jesus to say to these people. In Matthew, in his account of this same story, he, he adds another saying that Jesus said right after that, where Jesus says, I tell you, Many will come from the east and west, so those are Gentiles, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's the Israelites Jesus is talking to, will be thrown into the outer darkness. And he's talking about how many of his own people will not accept him. And he's getting at this idea of the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom. And so this is a very significant moment in the ministry of Jesus. And it's significant for a number of reasons. It has theological significance. This was always the trajectory of God's story. Think all the way back to God's first interactions with Abraham and the agreement, the covenant that he made with Abraham and the vision that he cast for Abraham of what he was going to be doing in the world, how he was going to bring his redemption through the lineage of Abraham who would eventually become Israel. And he told Abraham originally that all nations would be blessed through you. In your heritage. And then when Israel finally was, became a nation, they were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's vision for them was not just to have a strong relationship with them, but for them to be showing the other nations who God is and bringing them to him. And then in the Old Testament prophecies, when they prophesy the Messiah, one of the things they say is he's going to be a light to the nations. So this was always the trajectory. But you also see a societal significance. There's significance here for that society of that day. I'm sure you're aware that there was an Iron Curtain-like divide between Jew and Gentile. There was immense prejudice on both sides in that relationship. The, the Gentiles, especially the Greeks, had a lot of pride, and they looked at the Jews and saw them like barbarians. But then the Jews, they were the people of God, um, and they would not associate themselves with the Gentiles, which of course was not the vision that God had for them, but that's how what their culture started doing, and they wouldn't associate them. For example, the Apostle Paul, do you remember why he was originally imprisoned? And, and you think of his imprisonment in Acts 21 and 22, that, and then he had all those trials and eventually led to his death. Well, the, the, the instance where he was first imprisoned, there were, he was in Jerusalem, and some of the Jews saw him there, and they stirred up the crowds against him. And of course, part of it was that he was preaching Christ, and they didn't believe in him. But another reason they gave was that he's preaching God to the Gentiles, and they didn't like that. And so it helps us appreciate Paul all the more, that, that Paul kind of was this spearhead of the mission to the, to the nations, of which you know, everyone here, most of us here, are, are included in that. We are the nations. We are the Gentiles. Um, and so we're thankful that Paul began that and spearheaded that work. And so, you know, if miracles are windows into the grand story of redemption, here we see a window, in, a better window into what God is doing, that Christ's kingdom is a cosmic kingdom, that people of every tongue and nation will be bowing before his throne. That's where his 
kingdom is heading. And this has significance for us today as well. I see it in three ways. This should be a cause for celebration. As I just said, we are all Gentiles. We are all recipients of this mission that God's story is going on. And we all sit here um, on the other side of the world um, as recipients and benefactors of this mission to the nations. You know, if we had a time machine and could take some of the, the Israelites of Jesus' day to Redeemer Presbyterian um, today, uh, I just can imagine all the categories that would be blown to see this many Gentiles this far away from Israel worshiping the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and, and it would be, to, to think of it in that way just gives um, a lot of uh, significance to, to this moment that we are in, um, this stage of redemption. And we can celebrate just how far the gospel has spread in the world, even to places like Japan. Uh, maybe you realize Japan is the second largest unreached people group in the world. And I read a story, a couple stories recently about what God is beginning to do in Japan. You know, missionary efforts over the centuries have been very difficult in Japan. It is not very fertile soil for the gospel. I heard a story of a missionary who moved to Japan in the 80s, and he uh, evangelized for four years before he had his first convert. Just think of his faithfulness in that, despite the, the struggle. But then the next year, there were 13 converts, and then there were 50, and then there were 100, and he had a church, and eventually he planted a church uh, out of that. And I also heard a story of 10 years ago, a church that was planted in the heart of Tokyo, probably one of the most strategic cities in the world, which was a very hard task, a very, uh, very hard place to try and get a church planted and to take root. But now that church 10 years later is at 180 people, which in Japan standards, that's a mega church. And not only that, but that church has planted nine other churches in the last 10 years. So 10 churches have been planted in Tokyo in the last 10 years. God is on the move. And this is so encouraging for us. And this Sunday, more Christians will attend church in China than in all of Europe. I appreciate Dan sharing that story at the beginning where we see, yeah, it's, it's encouraging, but it's also still a struggle for them. And 100 years ago, Christianity made up 10% of the continent of Africa. Now it's at 50% today. And so the, this mission to the nations, God's kingdom is going forth. And this should cause us to celebrate. But another way that this is significant for us today is it should give us humility should give us great humility. As we think about our own Christian tradition here at Redeemer, we need to remember you know, and, and be able to discern what aspects of the way we express our faith, what aspects of those are, are those universal Christian principles, you know, the preaching of the word, the worship of God, the sacraments, evangelizing. Those are all universal things that all Christians are called to do. But we also have our own cultural expressions of our faith which we can celebrate, those are good things that are contributing to the greater uh, project of God's mission. But we also have to have humility and, and hold those cultural practices with humility and, and be able to humbly appreciate other cultural expressions of the faith and not look down on them. 
This, isn't, this is true not just between ethnicities or races, but also generations. Different generations can, can take on uh, different expressions of their faith, and we're called to have humility towards those and to learn from each other. And so there's a humility involved. But finally, this reminds us of our mission. This idea of God's kingdom transcending ethnic boundaries reminds us of our mission. Jesus says in the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses. He's talking to his disciples, and by association, he's talking to us. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. One author today has kind of brought that into our own language and says to, to be his witnesses across the street, across the tracks, and across the ocean. If you think about that, that framework, there's a, a, a significant involvement of the Gentiles, of the nations that are included in that, um, in that witness. So we calls us to ask, who are the Gentiles in our life right now? Who are the people who are different than us? Across the street, across the tracks, across the ocean. And how much are they included in our vision of the extent that God's kingdom is reaching? And this passage gives us a clue as to what moving towards those people can look like, and that's through relationship. You see that though there was a Gentile centurion and then these Jewish elders, you see the respect that they had for one another. And there was a really good relationship between them. And it shows us and reminds us that relationship is one of the primary ways that we can build and and cross these barriers with the gospel. And so God's kingdom transcends ethnic boundaries. But we also see something else significant that his kingdom transcends, and that is Jesus' physical presence. It's another thing we see in this passage. Jesus is going to show that the, that the king of his, this kingdom, which is himself, is more powerful than they realize. Returning to the story, the centurion has a servant that he loves who is sick. He's probably given all the best doctors. Uh, he's probably got all the resources to try and give the best care, but it's still not working. And he had heard of Jesus and he sends for him. And don't miss the immediacy with which Jesus turns and begins to go towards his house. He doesn't even have to think about it. This man with this extreme case, he immediately knows he can go and be of help. And so Jesus is on the way, and what happens next? The centurion sends another wave of friends who talk to Jesus and say on on behalf of the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. So he doesn't even come to Jesus physically. Him and Jesus are not in the same room. But he says, your word is enough. You don't even have to come. And then he explains in verse 8 where he's getting this from. And, and don't miss the significance of verse 8. He says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. What is the centurion getting at there? We don't know how well he knew Uh, the Old Testament, and if he did know it, he probably didn't know it that well. But there's one thing that this man did know, and he knew authority when he saw it. He had probably stood before generals, maybe even before the emperor. He knew what authority and and deep authority looked like, and he knew somehow that with Christ he was dealing with one who had consummate lordship. He's saying to him, I'm a lord and you're a lord. 
I command and soldiers obey. You command and creation obeys. We don't know the extent of which, how much Jesus' of authority that he grasps, but he clearly understands that Jesus' power is so great that even his word has power. So Jesus' power looks similar to how he saw Roman power. That was a system that held that each command came down in an unbroken chain that began with the emperor himself. So the centurion believed that Jesus had a similar chain, beginning with God himself. As the soldier's word had the emperor's authority, Jesus' word had God's authority over creation, over disease, over the demonic powers. So then what's Jesus' response to this understanding that the centurion has? It says in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. And that's, that's significant. That doesn't, doesn't talk about Jesus in that way much in the Gospels. That he marvels. And why does he marvel? There's two reasons that Jesus marvels at this man. And the first is his humility, which we will discuss in a moment. But he also marvels at, at the understanding this centurion has and the faith that he has in how and the depths of his authority that Christ can heal from far off. Or to use 2020 language, that Jesus can work remotely. His powers transcend physical presence. Up until now, if you remember, all of Jesus' work and his miracles were face-to-face. He had touched the person. He was right in front of them and healed them. But this is different where he's doing it from afar. And of course, that's a preview for what the kingdom was going to look like after Jesus' earthly ministry. And he goes to his throne of heaven where he's making all of his enemies into his footstool. Jesus said later in John to his disciples, it's better if I leave and, and go to my throne in heaven and the Spirit come down. Uh, and, and because of this idea that he was going to be on the throne of the world and his kingdom was going to go forth. Friends, we have given our lives to a Savior that we do not see. And, and we, there is a deep level of faith that that takes. And we need to appreciate that again today. The level of faith that God has given us to believe in him, though we do not see, as First Peter 1 says. So let me just give some examples. Reminds us of the faith that it takes to have a prayer life, to have a strong prayer life. Faith that God hears our prayers. I don't know, if you're anything like me, sometimes some of the things that you're praying for every day and for years, I can just feel, is my prayer making a difference? Is God really hearing this? And this passage, I think, reminds us that though we don't see God's physical reaction to our prayers, that he hears them and he's working through our prayers. And it's an encouragement to us to continue seeking the throne room of God and knowing that he hears us and praying for our loved ones, praying for our children, praying for those in need, praying for our own lives. Reminds us of the power in the sacraments. Yes, the sacraments are a physical expression to us that we need, but there's also an element of faith in in having faith that through these sacraments, God is building um, our faith and God is building our relationship with him. And, And through faith, we see the power and appropriate the power that the sacraments have. And also, you know, selfishly, it's an encouragement to me of the power of the preached word. That even though Christ is not standing here in our midst uh, preaching to us, that through my words, through his physical, 
the word of his Bible, that Christ is spiritually present here, preaching to our hearts and preaching to the hearts of his people in all churches around the world this morning as the gospel goes forth. And so the, the, the gospel transcends Jesus' physical presence, which we take for granted because that's always been our experience. But this was a, a very important thing for the people to realize about who Jesus was and the extent of his authority in his deity. But then we see finally the biggest gap of them all that the gospel transcends. And that's the, that's the borders of our guilt and our sin. There's this repeated word and concept in this passage, and that is worthiness. You see this focus on the idea of worthiness uh, as you go through this passage, but you see two very different paradigms at play around this idea of worthiness. The centurion was a very virtuous man, we see. He loves Israel. He doesn't have the typical racist attitude towards the Jews that most Romans, especially a centurion, would have. But he also built them a synagogue. It shows his love for God, that he was maybe a God-fearer, but also his generosity to these people. And his friend becomes ill, and he sends Jews to Jesus. Did you notice that? That he sent Jews. He, he probably didn't. That shows you know, the beginning of his humility. He didn't even feel worthy as a Gentile to go into Jesus' presence. And these Jews, if you look at how they talk to Jesus, they could almost just be called Americans and we wouldn't notice the difference because of the way they talk to Jesus and the paradigm that they're working from is very similar to the paradigm that we and our culture um, adopts. It says in verses 4 and 5, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. In other words, this is what they're saying. He is worthy, so do what he asks. But what does the centurion say? How does he approach Jesus? What paradigm does he have? He gets even more vulnerable as the passage goes on and essentially is saying, I am not worthy, Jesus. I'm not worthy of even being in the same room or presence as you. And what, is he, what conclusions does he draw from that? You know, what does he ask Jesus next in light of that? Does he say, I'm not worthy, so don't do what I ask? I withdraw my proposal. Why should you even listen to a slob like me? No, that's not what he does. You know, if the leaders, they're, they're saying, he is worthy, do what he asks, And if the centurion were then to say, I'm not worthy, so don't do what I ask, even if he was maybe disagreeing with them on the surface, at a fundamental level, they're operating out of the same paradigm. Because what's their approach to God? The paradigm is God's power comes into the life of those who are worthy. To those who by their moral virtue deserve it. And to say he's worthy to do what he asks, or like the centurion would have said, I'm not worthy, don't do what I ask, is the same paradigm. But what he says is astounding. He says, I'm not worthy. I'm nothing. I don't deserve to even have you come to my house. So would you please do what I ask? Did you see the difference in that? That doesn't make sense unless you're operating out of a different paradigm. As one author has helped me see, this doesn't fit sensibly into any of the other world religions or philosophies or or the human heart. It makes absolutely no sense unless you have a different paradigm of how you approach God. So he's saying, I'm not worthy, but you, Christ, are all worthy. 
but I ask you to bring your power into my life on some other basis than my moral virtue, which is insufficient. And Jesus says, now he's starting to get it. Now people are starting to get it. And this is another reason why he's so amazed in this moment. So what else is going on here? We see saving faith isn't just believing in Jesus in general. It's transferring our fundamental basic life trust from where it is to Jesus. And this centurion's trust probably would have been on his moral virtue. I mean, he had gone up the ranks and become a centurion. He was, he was an upright man, loving even his enemies. And maybe for us, it's our trust in our parenting or our work success or social success or our own good works that can bring that sense of deserving. But this man is shifting his trust to the work of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's it. That's how it works. And into this man's life comes the power of God. And so Jesus, if we remember, Jesus doesn't declare amazement of this man's faith in a vacuum. He's not just saying, wow, what amazing faith. No, remember, it says he turned to the people following him who were Israelites. And so this is a teaching moment for Jesus. And he says, not in all Israel have I found such faith. And so through the Holy Spirit, Christ turns to us as well. This This is a teaching moment for us to look at this centurion's faith, and not so much as an example that we need to rise up to, but Jesus is telling us to look at the content, the object of his faith. He's showing how we too can relate to God on the basis of someone else's work. And if only the centurion knew the depths of which he was saying, that the basis that we are relating to God upon and trusting in is the righteousness of God himself. That we can embrace our unworthiness because Jesus became the most unworthy on the cross and gave us the worthiness of his own righteousness. That gives us confidence to come even though we sense our unworthiness. And so we start to see how this all begins to fit together. When we have faith that God loves that his love transcends the biggest border of our sin and guilt, then what is it to ask God to help your friend who is struggling or to help you with your parenting or to provide for your needs? It gives us confidence in his care for us and encourages us to keep asking Christ on on the basis of his work, asking in Jesus' name. That's what we're doing when we're coming to God in Jesus' name. We're coming on his, the basis of his worthiness. It also affects the way we engage the nations. You know, I think we see in this passage, it was the recognition of his unworthiness before Christ that gave the centurion the humility to love people who were different than him. Because he didn't see himself as above them, but he saw it on the same level playing field. And the same is true for us and how we relate. And when we have all the more reason than the centurion, because we have a fuller picture of of the work of God, uh, we have even more reason to have faith. And this is freeing. It frees us to humbly love our spouse or our family and to love those across the street, tracks, or ocean who are different than us. And it frees us to cast our cares and our burdens onto Jesus because he cares for us and he has the power 
to bring flourishing into our lives, and it frees us to worship and bask in the glory of God's redemption and eagerly await his return. And we do pray that that he would come quickly. So what an encouragement, this transcendent kingdom that we are a part of, that has even led to our own uh, salvation here, another world away almost than, than where it began. And we are so encouraged to see how the gospel is going forth, and we are encouraged that God is continuing to use us in that same work. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your life-giving word that you have taught us with this morning. You, you say that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path because we, we live in a dark world and we need light um, to, to navigate life. So Lord, my prayer then is that we would keep that light on, that we wouldn't turn the light off, that we wouldn't turn the lamp off, that we would allow, that you would help the the words of this passage to to go deep into our hearts and that you would keep that light on, that your word would continue to be a path for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.